Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Marissa Peer. Marissa is a globally acclaimed therapist, best-selling author, and award-winning speaker. In our conversation, we discuss the importance of social connections in addressing mental health and depression. As I've said many times here and other places, we know that modern life, which is so often characterized by isolation and disconnection, contributes to physical and mental health issues. And Marissa built atop this foundation, outlining how depression often leads individuals to turn inward and avoid social interactions, and how this instinct only exacerbates debilitating symptoms of depression. But there is a way to unwind negative patterns and foster good mental health, especially when it comes to self-imposed social isolation. In her upcoming commune course, Marissa teaches strategies for mental health resilience, including eight days of hypnotherapy meditations, mirror work, journaling, and other mindfulness practices. So you can sign up for Marissa's course by going to onecommune.com slash Marissa. That's onecommune.com slash M-A-R-I-S-A to learn more. Okay, but before we dive in, I'm so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. To scroll down to the review and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glowing positive review to receive your free all access for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Okay, without further delay, I present to you, Marissa Peer. Hi, Marissa. Hi. Nice to be with you. You too. Um, so we are currently dealing with an epidemic of mental disorders. Mm-hmm. in the world, and particularly here in this country, um, where it's, it is said that one out of every two people in this country will be diagnosed with some form of mental disorders. So I'd love for you to explain how you define mental health. Well, I think mental health is, is like physical health. One in two people are going to get cancer now, too. You know, our, our physical health in this country is really alarming. Diabetes, cancer autoimmune diseases, and we have to look at both. Why have we got so many physical health issues? Why have we got so many mental health issues? Because the answer is the same. It's the way we live our lives. And you know, if ever you go and hang out in tribes, which I've done, you realize something very important. We are not designed for modern life. Doesn't mean we're not living it. Doesn't mean we can't live a good life, but human beings are not designed to live the life we live now. Disconnection, we don't live as tribes, we don't connect, we don't sit around the campfire metaphorically. People don't even sit around the dinner table now. They eat in front of the TV with their phones. And our whole modern world is a world of massive disconnection, which is making us physically ill and mentally ill at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because um, we often say, well, 
oh, it's just human nature for someone to be egocentric mm. or to someone to hoard for themselves mm. and their family. But that's not nature. That's actually culture. Yeah. You know, really, we evolved to, as you say, live in tribes. That's our mm. natural habitat. It is. Um, but in a way, maybe what you're saying is that mental health is a product of evolution being slow mm. and culture being very fast. <laughs> well, you know, we're part of nature. You know, when you go and mm -hmm. sit in nature, you realize, oh, I'm actually part of nature. Look at the grass, the trees. This, this is me and I am it. And we are part of nature. And when you're around nature, when you're sitting in the grass and the stream is gurgling by and the birds, you think, oh, I feel pretty good. But when mm. you're in a high-rise block, and there is none of that, and your feet never touch the ground. As I mean, touch the ground as in you never walk on grass or you're never at the beach. It, it affects your mental health because you're disconnected from nature. But you know, mm. one of my friends is saying she wanted to get a dog, and she went to Batty Dogs, and they said, no, you can't have a dog because you're not at home enough, and the dog will be lonely, and you can't have a cat because you're always out. And it's funny how when we're looking at places where we need two and they need company and they need they need social care, but we don't do that to us. And um, my husband tells this story about someone who came to eat a comedian's house and they took his dog off him because the conditions were not fit for the dog, but they left him there. <laughs> and recently somebody was telling me that they found this injured bird on the beach in Venice and they didn't know if they could take the bird. It was what, so they paid a homeless man to babysit the bird so they could come back and live with a heated box. And they took the bird off to a bird sanctuary and they left the homeless man on the beach. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Mm. We do understand what animals need, companionship. Two of them, we say, you know, you can't possibly leave that poor. Look at that animal in the zoo alone. It needs a companion. But we don't do that for us. We live alone in little boxes with no company and with all these... Um, social media keeping us company and we, we don't even question that that's making us really ill and marissa it, it seems on some level that we actually know better because we know about the blue zones for example these places that have the highest uh, preponderance of centenarians mm. and one of the key components to longevity and also and also for health span how long we live a thriving and, for, and flourishing life is community and connection. Yeah, and belonging. And belonging. Belonging to a group, feeling a sense of importance and a sense of connection. Mm, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I interviewed a fascinating gentleman from Harvard. His name is uh, Robert Waldinger. He's actually a psychiatrist, chain, trained psychiatrist, but he's also the director of the Harvard Study for ad ad Adult Development, which is the longest prospective longitudinal study on human happiness. Mm -hmm. So they, they followed 238 subjects from 1938 on mm -hmm. every year. And the number one indicator for self-reported well-being and happiness was the number of social connections yeah. that a person has. Your relationships with other people. And even in your career, actually, because people, if in a job they feel connected, they feel they're making a difference, they won't leave. So if you have staff who feel I'm contributing here, making a difference, and I feel connected and valuable, they'll stay with you. So we know that for humans that need to connect. 
it's really, really, it was why some people don't want to leave jail. They have in Japan an epidemic of middle-aged women being arrested for shoplifting and saying, I like being in jail. <laughs> why is that? I'm connected. It's like being in girls' boarding school. I get to have breakfast with 50 other women. I hang out. I talk. And when I leave and go home to my single apartment, I feel lonely. And we think, what kind of world have we got? Would people would rather be in jail yeah. in a home because of the connection they have. Yeah, it was Sebastian Younger, who's a brilliant journalist, um, also writes about this in relation to men and war. Yeah. Where the PTSD that many, um, that many vets feel mm -hmm. is actually related to the lack of community when yeah. they actually come home. Sure. And they, you know, when you know mm. they're out and deployed, yeah. they feel a sense of camaraderie. And that's camaraderie. why young boys join gangs and join cults. Mm. And because they feel the connection, they have that tribal need to bond and connections. But, you know, I know you say we know this, but when I was recently in a country, I was looking at how they have iPads in strollers for six-month-old babies facing away from the parents right. and doing that. And we have children now with phones that are babysitters. We can buy a, a pet dog that's actually a robot. We can live in our house and press a button and have groceries delivered. And we can never see anyone. We now, we, now we've got rid of bank tellers and shoppers. And soon, in 10 years, we won't have drivers. We'll have robots driving cars. I know the biggest <clears throat> employment in America is lorry drivers. They're all going to be redundant. So we may know this, mm. but we're not really doing enough about it because we're making people less and less important. They're being replaced in so many areas. And now, of course, we're all working from home. So although we know it, and I think half of us are doing it, but the other half are not. They're just, think, oh, I don't need people. I can get artificial intelligence to do all of this. So it is a worry what we, we know that people need connection. And yet we live in a world where we're disconnecting them more every year. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole emerging field of sociogenomics yeah. even where just the interaction that we're having right now yeah. is actually impacting certain the expression of certain yeah. genes in my yeah, body. I know, I know. Um, it's just a, a, amazing? amazing. It's incredible. So upstream from all of these diagnoses, PTSD, ADHD, ADD, depression, um, psychosis, you know, is you know, one of the origins, I think we're putting our finger on it, is loneliness, loneliness. and isolation. Yeah. And so how do we address that disconnection i think you have to educate people and say look this is going to make you ill living alone you know we don't make phone calls we now text we whatsapp nobody picks up the phone so we have to actually this living alone is going to make you ill if the number of connections you have is indicated of a happy life and you haven't got any then that's a worry so we just have to look at making people see how important it is for your health. It's all very, you know, go to the gym, that'll make you healthy. Eat green stuff, that'll make yeah. you healthy. But you should also say, and have social connections. Have someone to talk to. I mean, there's an epidemic with old people alone, but also t young teenage boys who yeah. can't connect. And, you know, we're making people really, really ill, making them sick, we're making them lonely. They have autoimmune disease where their body starts attacking itself because they're full of self-hatred. They think it's their fault. 
They go online, which is not a real world, and they compare them. Look at that person with a six-pack. Look at that woman. Right. She's perfect. Her kids are perfect at home. So it's not real. But this overexposure to false images of reality makes us feel dissatisfied. I think, well, I'm going to be by myself then. I'm not good enough. And so not only are we becoming lonely, we're also choosing it. I'm just going to get dumped and ghosted again and again. I'm going to get some cats and live on my own. Hmm. My friends keep hurting me. I won't have any friends. I'm just going to be by myself and then nobody can disappoint me ever again or be disappointed in me. So not only are we becoming lonely, some of us are actually choosing it because we've been so hurt and so rejected. Yeah. And we don't know that this is so bad. So, so one of the things about the course is explaining to people what happens when you isolate yourself, when you start to reject yourself, when you become super critical of yourself. Mm. And these are the indicators that are going to show you have a little bit worrying mental health, but just like having worrying physical health, there are steps you can do to get good mental health. So the course takes through eight days of what can you do to have good mental health? Because actually the steps aren't, just as we know, hey, if you've got bad physical health, exercise, drink water, eat green stuff, get enough sleep. Well, mental health is the same. Find some connections believe you're worth it, have some affirmations, really feel good about yourself, make yourself do the very thing you don't want to do. Because the thing with being depressed is the thing you don't want to do. I don't want to talk to anyone, don't want to leave the house, don't want mm -hmm. to eat, cook anything healthy, because depressed means to go inwards. But the very thing you don't want to do is the thing you must do, but that's easier said than done. So we have these eight hypnotic meditations to convince your mind that you actually want to do it, you like doing it, you like talking to people, you like making friends, you like stretching yourself, because once you stretch your mind to a new dimension, it doesn't ever go back again. And what was unfamiliar, being connected becomes familiar. What was uncomfortable, talking to people becomes comfortable. And so it's very easy to give a prescription, do that, but we forget that the human mind doesn't like what is unknown unfamiliar, mm. uncomfortable. So you have to yeah. make what is unfamiliar, familiar, what is uncomfortable, what is unknown, known. And then the mind goes, oh yeah, I know this, I like it. And then mm -hmm. it stops being what you do and it becomes who you are. And then you're winning in the game of having good mental health as opposed to poor mental health. Mm. That's so good. I mean, I think you draw a great analogy there. You talk about um, like physiological fitness, mm. we go to the gym, we do pull-ups, yeah. we do sit-ups. Sure. What you're then pointing to is a socio-emotional fitness. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, while we take going to the gym, some of us anyways, yeah. pretty seriously, there's not a lot of curriculum per se for social and no, emotional really fitness. No and that's what you're providing. You. you know, all you have to do is this, 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 and this, and it's not that difficult. If you do it, it gets easier. All you've got to do is look at your needs that are unmet. Look at, you know, how do you let people treat you? How do you treat yourself? You look at certain things, go, hey, I could just make a few little adjustments. It's a bit like if you've never done the plank, mm -hmm. you don't like doing the plank. If you do it enough, you think, oh, I kind of like the plank now. I've mm -hmm. kind of slotted it into my life. It's like flossing your teeth or any of those things. No mm -hmm. one likes putting a bit of silicon on their finger, putting it in their eye, but if you do it every day, it becomes the most normal thing. In fact, you can do it without a mirror. And you can do very much the same thing with good mental health. There are certain things that we know that are key indicators to having good mental health. One of them mm. 
is how good are you expressing hurt? Can you say, you know what, you're my friend, I really like you, but you really hurt my feelings the other day. I need to tell you that, otherwise you're gonna get in the way. And I've told mm. you that, it's okay. So we know that people who express their hurt as close to it happening have very good mental health, but we don't say to them, well, look, this is how to do it. You don't mm. go up and go, hey, you hurt me, how dare you? We show you on the course, you just learn to say, even to yourself, that hurt me. Mm. I put say, oh, I'm not going to tell you hurt me, you might hurt me again. But actually, if you tell someone you laugh, you know, you really hurt me, you didn't call me, I both think, oh, I make a point then of not doing that again. Mm. So good mental health is knowing what you need, understanding, can I actually do that? And then having your mindset, well, I think that I, I want to do it, this is so important to me, I'm going to do it. And then finding you actually like it and then finding it becomes familiar. So you do it automatically after a while. Mm. You build new habits. Yeah, you build, well, you build new neurons as well. We yeah. know that every time you do something, you create neuroplasticity and then it becomes easier. Well, you know, I think that's really interesting that one of the indicators for good mental health is the ability to express yourself honestly yeah. and to uh, to be vulnerable. Are there yeah. other strong indicators for good mental yeah. health? You know, one of the key indicators, the basis of friendship is we choose people who share our vulnerabilities. If you hide them, then you've not got that basis for good friendship. But another one is how good are you at accepting praise? Mm. praising yourself because that's again good mental people with good mental health say you know i'm really good at it or i'm great with people i can do that or actually i could fix that because that's my gift and then i go i'm actually useless at everything but i'll give it a go they say <laughs> oh i happen to be amazing at plumbing or i'm so glad you called me i'm the best specialist in this area so good mental health means you're good at praise Bad mental is you're good at criticism. Oh, I'm rubbish. I don't know how I can't do anything. I've got rocks for brains. And one of the fastest ways to grow healthy self-esteem and good mental health is to praise yourself a lot and to criticize yourself as little as possible. Mm. You can say things like, I didn't even have time to get there today, but tomorrow I'm going to, in future, I'll always leave half an hour earlier. That's constructive. I didn't take my phone charger, that was a bit silly, but now I've put one in the car, so it's always gonna be there, that's okay. But you need to learn to get really familiar with praising yourself and letting praise in. So a lot of people, so familiar to be criticized, if you can say, hey, I love that show, I've had it 20 years, got a hole in it, I got it at a car boot sale. They immediately reject the praise, but no, they have to add in some criticism. I love your talk, it was terrible. I love your book. Oh, I think it's terrible, it's selling so badly. Someone else's book is much better. Mm. They don't only reject what is unfamiliar praise, they add in what is familiar criticism. Mm. And you have to reverse that by going, okay, I'm gonna get really good at praise. I'm gonna let that in, but I'm not gonna let in criticism. And one of the things we did was a five-step process to not let in criticism, because criticism withers you and praise builds you. And yet so many of us were so familiar with parents who put us down, even using humor, that when we meet someone who praises us, we don't actually like it. I meet with so many people who say, I met a nice person, they were too good for me. Mm. What they're saying is their behavior was so good, it was so unfamiliar, 
I had to reject it and go back to what I know. Right. I had a yeah. mean, critical dad, and now I like mean, critical men. I had a cold, absent mother. That's exactly the person I go for. Because what we're doing in a very abstract way is recreating what we know, but trying to change the ending. And mm. life's too short for that. You have to change the beginning. So the whole course is strategies that really work. They're very simple, but they're also amazingly powerful. Their power is in their simplicity because they're easy to apply. Yeah. Well, and so much of this is sort of hidden in plain sight. I mean, if yeah, anyone spent a moment really analyzing the nature of their self-talk, mm. they would very, very quickly notice that it's generally highly critical. Yeah. And you're in this incessant conversation yeah. with your ego. <laughs> and if you spoke to a friend the way you speak to yourself, they'd be yeah. long gone. Long gone. If you're frank and everyone, oh my God, you look awful. Oh, that piece you wrote is dreadful. Look, you haven't even got any healthy food in the house. You're such an idiot. You haven't left enough time to get to work. What's wrong with you? You crazy? Your friend would go, oh, I don't actually think I need you in my life anymore. <laughs> That's but right. you've got to imagine a day in your life, how much do you criticize yourself? Mm. And if you did that to your friend or your partner, would they stick around? The answer is no. Yeah. So you've got to be your own best friend. And like the song says, try a little tenderness. Yeah. Because it works. <laughs> um, we also tend to compare oh, all the that, time, yeah. right? And we spoke about social media, right? So what we're comparing... Mm against isn't even truly real no, it's, it's real. this feigned perfection yeah. and then in, to meet that that false perfection yeah we create a false version of ourselves yeah. that then we amplify out into the world mm. and uh, i think theodore roosevelt said it you know the comparison is the invisible thief of joy yeah i was <laughs> that comparison is the thief of joy yeah. And so when you realize what steals your joy, what steals your happiness, what steals your pleasure, it's looking at social media and comparing yourself to someone and thinking, well, they just had a baby and look, they're perfect. Well, they've got a chef and a cook and the photos are retouched. <laughs> or look yeah. at those kids that my kids aren't like that. You know, years ago, my friend and I had a baby and her baby appeared to be perfect and mine and she would say, why is your kid so bad? I said, no, she's not bad. We don't even use the word bad. She was American. I said, my kid is age appropriate. She's like a little puppy. She's running. If I say stop, she keeps going. Eventually she stops. But her little girl was so good. Later, she had tremendous social anxiety. And we realized that this child was an introvert, mm. which is why she was so good. But it was amazing how she said, well, what's wrong with your daughter? She's bad. No, she's just age appropriate. And all these labels that people have and comparing your child. You know, that comparison starts, people say, my baby could walk at 10 months. Oh, my baby could speak at one. You know, amazing that starts. And that takes the joy of your parent. You're comparing your kid with someone else's. And then it goes on and on and on. And we really should be stopping that. But schools encourage that. You know, they, they give the child who gets the best results a reward. They don't give the child who worked the hardest a reward. Mm. And so and schools have streaming and grades. And that starts at five. And it's, I mean, my little girl, I took her into school and she said, Mommy, that person can write their name in a box. And I can't say, so, but their name is Sam. Your name is Phaedra. 
It's a beautiful <laughs> long name, but Phaedra is not Sam. And who cares about putting your name in a box? You're an artist, you're a dancer. But I really resented that, that at five, it was like, let's get your name in a box. And there was a girl in her class called D.M. Antopoulos. I mean, do you think she could get her name in a box? No. So we do terrible things to children when we start to compare them with other kids because sometimes kids are really smart. I mean, Einstein was told he was educationally subnormal. He was a genius. But you can't do that. And that's why it was so important for me to create this course to stop that comparing, to stop that making us feel inadequate and inferior, to recognize that social media isn't real. And the answers are in you. And all the things you're suffering with, you can stop suffering. Just go through the eight days mm. and you can go back to believing in yourself. No babies with, you know, I've got fat legs. Look at these triple knees. Oh my God, I haven't got any hair. <laughs> babies have no idea. They don't go, that baby's much better than me. They've got teeth and hair. I mean, my baby was born with masses of hair. My brother's baby was bald for two years, but they didn't know. Right. They were perfectly happy. So we weren't okay. born like that. We were taught to be like that. And just as we learnt it, we can unlearn it. And I really recommend unlearning it. Yeah. We, all of these labels that we end up giving mm. everything in the outside world, yeah. inherent to that process yeah. is labeling yourself. Yeah. yeah. And then you become confused yeah. with who you really are yeah. with the label of yourself. And when you label someone, you limit, even when you go, my genius kid, my daughter, she's so good, my son, mm. he's so good. That is a limiting label because they hear, mm. oh, that's why you love me, because I'm good, smart, and I've got to be like that all my life, and yeah. don't have labels. Well, you've been such a pioneer in developing modalities to address some of these core issues. Perhaps you could take just a moment to define hypno-meditation and what the kind of primary uh, tools are in that yeah. toolbox. You know, something magical happens in hypnosis. It doesn't happen out of it. A magical thing is that the mind starts to send different messages to the body. You can do this. You're brave. You're confident. Only does the mind send different messages to the body. It also interprets ones coming back differently. So fear becomes excitement. Mm. And then we have this other amazing thing that happens that your body is run by a network of intelligence. And in hypnosis, you drop into that network. And you start to influence the mind and there's a critical factor that goes, that's never going to happen. And in hypnosis, it shuts down. So you can hear mm. stuff that you might reject. So that's the wonderful thing about hypnosis. Now, meditation, people say, I've got to empty my mind. Here's the thing, your mind does not want to be emptied. doesn't know how to, your subconscious mind will never be empty. It's always on. It's always on record. So this thing about let's go into the gap for an hour and empty my mind. It's hard work. You can do hypnosis for two minutes. So I combined hypnosis with a meditation where the mind isn't emptied. In fact, the mind is becoming your best friend, your best ally. And it's focusing, oh, I know what you want now. See, if you say I want attention, you might get a nervous twitch, get loads of attention. You might get explosive gas, you'll get even more attention. <laughs> but you've got to be very specific with what you want. So hypno-meditation is this getting the mind to send different messages, but knowing exactly. If you say, I want more money, well, I've got some money. I want love, but how long do you want love for and with who? So it's getting the mind to understand. See, if you say to the mind, 
well, I really don't want to fail that exam tomorrow. In fact, I don't want to fail the exam, mind you. I was okay, I'll give you chronic diarrhea. Now you can't fail it because you can't leave the house to even go to it. So guess what? You can't fail the exam. <laughs> I don't want my to be rejected and dumped again. I make no one love you and I make you very cold and then you can't be rejected. So mm. be careful what you ask for. So in the meditation, you become more clear. I want to ace that exam because I've got a great memory. I want someone to recognize I'm the most lovable, amazing, compelling, magnetic, lovable person for them. And I'm going to have this great relationship forever. So it's the combination of the hypnosis, but the real focus on being clear about what you want. Because your mind will always take you to what it thinks you want, but unless you're specific, it doesn't get it. So a lot of us think, you know, I, I want to be pregnant. Well, that's great. You can be pregnant eight times. Is that going to give you a baby? Not at all. It should be, I want to conceive, carry, deliver a robust, healthy baby. Mm. And that's the problem. We focus on what we want without realizing that we're focusing on the wrong thing. What kind of attention? What do you want attention for? I want people to look at me. Well, not because I've got a nervous twitch or I'm lifting groceries in the store, but that can guarantee you get looked at. So it's that beautiful combination of being absolutely crystal clear because your mind's job is to give you what it thinks you want. And your job is to make sure your mind knows with no room for confusion what it is that you really, really want. Mm, that's so helpful to let the snow globe yeah. settle. Yeah, right? yeah. So your mind has a job mm -hmm. and you have a job. And if you do your job better, your mind can do its job better. And then you won't suffer with poor mental health at all. Mm. Thank you, Marisha. So grateful to be partnering and collaborating on this course that I know will help a lot of people. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled too. I feel equally grateful. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Marissa Peer. Be sure to go to onecommune.com slash Marissa, that's M-A-R-I-S-A, to learn more about her course. And if you enjoyed today's show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to Commune membership, well, write us a review on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a good one to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with suggestions or criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Mall, Savannah Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. What a team. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you.